Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, September 11th. With us now, David Miliband, president of the International Rescue Committee, which advocates for and provides services to refugees and other people displaced by war or other extreme circumstances. He is just back from Ukraine. He has now run the International Rescue Committee for 10 years. And as some of you know, he was previously the British foreign minister. So we'll talk about his observations in Ukraine, refugee sites in Poland, which he also visited. Also get his take on the asylum seeker surge that's top of mind in New York and other U.S. cities right now. And on this 9-11 anniversary, people still displaced indirectly as a result of that. David, we're always happy that you come on this show from time to time. We're better for it. Welcome back to WNYC and congratulations on 10 years. Thank you so much, Brian. It's very good to be with you and very moving to hear the remembrance of the terrible day in 2001. So an auspicious day to be talking to you and thank you for giving me some space. And we'll touch on some uh, things that are in your work that are relevant to 9-11. But I want to start with Ukraine and Poland. Feel free to take a minute or two and tell us, what did you go there to see that you didn't already know about? And what did you learn? Yes, please. Thanks very much. I I thought it was very important to make a second visit to Poland and to Ukraine. The International Rescue Committee, as you said, it was founded by Einstein, Albert Einstein, a refugee in New York 90 years ago. And we help people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster. Uh, There are about 5 million Ukrainian refugees uh, out of the country, uh, across Europe, a couple of million of them in Poland. And inside the country, there are 18 million people in humanitarian need. That's about half the population of people inside the country. Obviously, the most dangerous are those towards the east of the country, cities like Kharkiv in the northeast, Dnipro at about 3 o'clock on a clock face, uh, down to Kherson, in the southeast, and then Odessa, the famous city of Odessa. In those cities, the IRC has teams. We have about 250 people in total, reaching people uh, in areas that are under Ukrainian control and giving them health support, cash support, protection for kids who've lost who've lost parents. And so they're on the front line in the same way that um, one would uh, use that expression for a conflict line anywhere in the world. I thought it was really important to go at this time for a particular reason, because there's a danger that the Ukraine war becomes a kind of background music to our uh, to our lives. And uh, the way I put it is the danger is that the abnormal becomes normal. What's abnormal? It's abnormal to have half the country of a European state, depending on humanitarian aid, survive. It's abnormal to have that many people displaced as refugees. It's abnormal to have conflict that includes the bombing of power stations and water pumping plants, which will become a real danger as we go close to winter. It's abnormal to have civilian housing bombed by Russian missiles, but that's what's happened. And the danger is that uh, this uh, the abnormal does become normalized in such a way that Ukraine drifts away and the need for a, a civilian effort in that country, we don't obviously get engaged in the military side, but dealing with the victims, the civilians, they're facing trauma of a really fundamental kind. Just final point, 
and look forward to, to questions and discussion. You mm -hmm. asked, well, what did I learn that I didn't know? I can obviously read the statistics um, from New York. I don't need to be in Ukraine. But a couple of things. First of all, when you talk to every woman you talk to inside the country or as a refugee outside, it's only women and kids who are allowed out of the country. You just know and you can see that a husband, a brother, a son is on the front line uh, of the military effort and they just don't, they're just dreading the phone call to give them bad news. The second thing is that war takes its toll in the most unusual ways. I'm, you may have covered the bombing by the Russian by the Russians of something called the Kakovka Dam. It's a very important dam that uh, uh, the flooding that arose from it destroyed all sorts of livelihoods. But here's something I didn't know. Uh, the flooding moved landmines many tens of miles. So it carried the landmines that had been planted in previously on the conflict line planted by the Russians. It took them into civilian areas way down further south in the country. And so there are contaminated areas with landmines now. And so we're partnering with a, a demining organization mm -hmm. to help make those areas safe as well. You know, you talk about the normalization and it makes me think again of this day, 9-11, when we honor 3,000 people or so killed on that day with such reverence every year, including reading every individual's name at the World, uh, World Trade Center. But I guess there's a psychological process that's just human that makes it hard not to be numb, perhaps, to the individual humanity of tens or hundreds of thousands of casualties uh, in, in such a short period of time from the invasion of Ukraine, but in a situation that, as you say, is ongoing. And I know you're concerned about this compassion fatigue. How do you fight it? I think that there are two things that I think are really important. There's a terrible phrase by a murderous dictator called Joseph Stalin, who said, one person's death is a tragedy, a million people's death is a statistic. Mm. And so the first thing is always to remember that there's a human story behind every every statistic. And that seems to me to be very, very important. Secondly, to take the voices of the people affected and let them do the talking. I mean, it's good for me to come on uh, this show and uh, answer questions, but there's nothing like the actual testimony of the clients that we're serving. The women I met in Poland, who are Ukrainian refugees, how they are, they're looking for work there. They're trying to tend to their children there and keep up their spirits. I think that's very important. And what an organization like the International Rescue Committee can do is to show that we can make a difference because those clients, they're getting mental health support. They've had the cash support. Uh, they, they can refer their relatives who are maybe elderly or people with disabilities who can't leave the country. They can make sure that we know where they are. So there's, a, if you like, a, a focus on addressing the problem, not just uh, describing the problem. What did you see in Poland? I saw you wrote afterwards that more than a million refugees are living in limbo in Poland. What does living in limbo mean in this case? Well, they want to go home, but they don't know when they can do so. They're grateful to the Polish authorities uh, because I don't know, I think we've covered this on a previous discussion. The weekend after the invasion, 24th of February uh, 2022 was the date of the Russian invasion. It was a Thursday. The weekend after, within the weekend, the European Union, 27 countries, agreed that every Ukrainian could have at least three years residence, three years work permit, three years welfare support, three years education for kids. But it's limbo because uh, they want to go home and they don't know when they're going to be able to do so. It looks like a long war. Uh, that's what the experts are saying on the military side. 
but it's very hard to plan if you if, if you if you've got no timeline and so what i found were people whose lives if you like were in were in suspended animation uh, they were grateful to the poles but they don't want to live in poland for the rest of their lives they want to go back to a free ukraine and that leaves people with a really really tough set of choices to make quite a few of them though go back i spoke to a woman who went back to see her house it had been bombed the um windows had been blown out but it was still intact uh, there's no one living there um she's not able to live there at the moment uh and so you can see that they are that they're, they're in this position where Europe's solidarity has made a difference to them, but it's not the final answer. Are there refugee camps like tent tent cities? Oh, I'm in sorry, some that's places? a good question. Yes, I should have or, addressed or, that. Yeah, oh. just how I'm curious because, of course, we have our own asylum seeker housing yes. issues going on in New York. How are more than a million people being housed? in Poland who are recent refugees from Ukraine. That's a great point. That's that's a that's a very important point I should address it. There are no refugee camps. Uh what happened um as the uh, it was actually more than a million uh, by the last summer of 2022 but um people were immediately distributed across uh, the country although Warsaw the capital had about 250,000 um uh refugees including over 100,000 kids who went into Warsaw's schools but they stayed um, on, in people's front rooms, in people's living rooms. They slept on couches. Um, since then, they've been able to try and get housing. Um, there are a small number of people in government-run shelters uh, where housing breaks down or where someone can't get a job and can't support themselves. But that's the minority of the million people. There is a safety net of a government-run uh, shelter. But because people are allowed to work, we might come back to this in the discussion of the New York situation, because they're allowed to work, the Ukrainians in Poland, they can support themselves. And so most of them are in private housing now. Um, that's obviously putting pressure on the rental market, which is a problem. There's pressure in the schools because it's not exactly the class sizes have doubled, but there's a lot of kids in schools. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Ukrainian and Polish are not the same language. Um, so there's a real effort by the Ukrainian authorities to continue online classes. And what I found was that kids were doing in, um, studying in the Polish system nine till two with extra support for language, but then doing some classes with the through the Ukrainian Ministry of Education in the afternoon. Is there backlash among the Polish people saying we don't want to be responsible for all this financially or infrastructure wise or anything like this, like we're getting in the United States? I mean, basically, no. And the reason for that is that President Putin provides a particularly unifying enemy. I mean, uh -huh. he is the cause of this influx of refugees, the exodus from Ukraine. And obviously, given the history, um, Poles have a very dark uh, view of Russia and its intentions towards countries in Eastern Europe. Um, they see this as existential, because if the Russians had taken over Ukraine, the border between East and West then becomes the Eastern Polish border. Um, I took the train from Przemysl, uh, which is just across the border from Lviv. In uh, Lviv is in Western Ukraine. Przemysl is in Eastern Poland. Um, if the Russians were, con were controlling the whole of Ukraine, then Poland would feel that, it, quote unquote, it was next. And so I think the backlash has been forestalled by the the, the very serious um, backlash against the Russian invasion. That's what people see as the cause of this trouble. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat this. 
it's a hell of a thing for a country to have a million refugees. Just for your benefit, the benefit of your listeners, the Polish population is about 45 million. So if you think that in American terms, uh, America's population, 325, 335 um, million, you can see it's six or seven times um, the size of the Polish population. So a million people arriving in Poland is like six or seven million people arriving in the US. Um, so it's quite a strain. I don't want to pretend that people don't become frustrated, bored, um, annoyed when if you've got someone living in your front room and it starts out for a week and it ends up being for three months. Of course, that's a strain. But the degree of resilience of the polls has been very striking. In your experience, how do countries handle the large influxes of refugees or asylum seekers geographically. Mayor Adams and public advocate Jamani Williams often at odds on these issues. They're, they're both talking about what they call a decompression strategy, which would involve the federal government, or in some cases, the state government, doing some kind of distribution of where asylum seekers start out, so no one city is overwhelmed in terms of cost or infrastructure. Uh, some people obviously wouldn't like this idea because it's telling the refugees or the asylum seekers, no, you can't go here, you have to go there, and restricting their freedom of movement. But in your experience, do countries do this? Well, the short answer is yes. Just to state the obvious, uh, if you um, move people from one part of Germany or Poland to another part, you can't stop them moving, you can't restrict their freedom of movement. And ditto, if you move people from one part of New York State to another part of New York State, you can't restrict their freedom of movement either. However, I do think it's important to be clear that all of common sense, never mind experience around the world, tells you that a responsibility shared is a responsibility far more able to be fulfilled. Uh, there is good evidence of this from the German response to the Syrian refugee crisis in 2015-16, which I remember talking to you about on your on your show. One and a half million people claimed uh, asylum from Syria in Germany in the space of about six months after the summer of 20, even four months after the summer of 2016, after Mrs. Merkel said that she would uh, handle that. Um, and they did handle it. How did they handle it? First of all, small towns as well as large cities in Germany took a proportionate number of people. Secondly, the federal government did two very important things. First of all, it ran the asylum processing system because not everyone was entitled to stay. And secondly, it, it offered financial support. So I think that the, the, the common sense and the experience does say to you that you need to share the responsibility if you're to fulfill the responsibility. Fabiola in Queens, you're on WNYC. Hi, Fabiola. Hi, um, Brian and David. Thank you for taking my call. I'm very grateful that you're drawing this, I don't know if it's a parallel line or sort of a comparison between the, the refugee crisis in New York and the U.S. and Ukraine. Um, I, I'm a reporter. I've been covering in, uh, Spanish language reporter the crisis in New York, and I also went to Ukraine, and many people there didn't understand why a Spanish-speaking person w was there trying to understand the conflict, but my question is, um, why do you think the refugees that are coming from the southern border are being treated differently than the refugees coming from Ukraine? Is it a matter of race? Is it a matter of politics? Like, I've known people from Ukraine that have come 
seeking refuge and asylum in, in, in the U.S., and they've already gotten a place to live. They've already gotten, uh, you know, sort of like, I don't want to say their livelihood sore because obviously they've lost everything. But what is the main difference? I mean, many people at the border have complained that um, people coming from Ukraine kind of got ahead in the line, sort of say. Um, mm-hmm. And I just want to know, what do you think is the difference? Is, is, is there a view differently that people that are coming from a country that is being bombed Maybe they have a different need than people that are coming from countries that have failed governments. Yeah, and and you're saying, Fabiola, not just that people from Ukraine are being more welcomed in Poland than people from elsewhere in this hemisphere are being welcomed by the United States, but Ukrainians coming here are being welcomed differently than people from uh, the troubled countries in our own backyard, if we want to call Latin America and the Caribbean our own backyard. Uh, So, David, you mentioned... Putin as a common enemy uh, for the people of Ukraine and Poland. What else would you add in the United States context, the different response? Well, I think the clue, the clue thank you, Fabiola, for your interesting question. I think the clue is in how Fabiola ended it. Uh, first of all, the situation uh, in Latin America is a long-term, protracted, complicated. The situation in Ukraine has a very clear, identifiable starting point, 24th of uh, February, uh, it's also the case that the Ukraine numbers are capped. The, there were 100,000 places offered to Ukrainians by the United States, and it was capped at that uh, level. And so I think that the different nature of the crisis speaks to uh, the different treatment. I'm not making a normative judgment about what's right or what's wrong, but that, I think, it explains the uh, difference. Obviously, there's no, there's no equivalent invasion um, of one country by another in um, South America, thank goodness, Latin America. Um, but our, our argument as uh, an organization dedicated now, $1.5 billion organization in, in 40 countries uh, with with staff around the world, what we can do is say, is not use the word parallels. We understand exactly why Fabiola was hesitant to use that word, but there are lessons. And our ability is to be an expert witness about what works and what doesn't work. And we hope that in the process that we can help promote the dignity and the livelihood and the future of each of the people that we're serving, as well as those who can benefit from our policy advice. I know you got to go in a minute. Um, Always got time for you, Brian. I, you know, I want to acknowledge that a number of people are calling or texting to say, what about climate refugees? And I'm just curious um, if you think that that's going to be a major, major source of refugees in the near future on Earth. Great. Well, I'd love your the listeners who are texting in or writing in to go to the IRC website, which is rescue.org. And if they click onto our emergency watch list, which was published last December, they'll see something directly relevant to the question they're asking. Of the 110 million people around the world who are today refugees or internally displaced people, we reckon about 70% of the problem, if you like, is caused by conflict. Conflicts like the Ukraine conflict, but also like the conflict that's raging in Sudan at the moment. Uh, But then there's also uh, the climate issue and then economics as well. But we're seeing one of the things that's associated with global warming is more extreme weather events. And those uh, disasters, they displace more people. Uh, It's also the case that climate heating contributes to stress on resources. That's something that is a driver of conflict as well. And so climate is very much part of the question. Just for the nerds amongst your listeners, um, 
be careful in referring to climate refugees because a lot of the people who are displaced by climate a crisis at the moment are staying within their own country. So they're not being displaced yet across borders. They're climate internally displaced. But of course, conflict within states, climate crisis, economic distress, those are long-term factors, not short-term ones. And the message I've given every every week, really, that I've been working at the IRC is that we have to treat the symptoms, but also address the causes. Yeah. And that's what we try and do in the work that we perform around the world. David Miliband, former British Foreign Secretary and president for 10 years now of the International Rescue Committee, which serves and advocates for refugees. Thank you so much for your time today, David. Thank you very much. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.